Father God, we praise you so much for this day. The chance that we get to come up and to worship you, God, as a body of believers. God, let us never take it for granted. Because you are holy. God, we love you so much. Christ, and pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We have been going, I'm in Malachi. We've been going through the book of Mark. I have a microphone on tonight, not because I want you all to hear me, but because, because they record this and I want my mom to hear it. So if she doesn't live here, so that way she can listen. Anyway, that's why I wear this thing. Um, and my hair's messed up, so forgive me. We had Turkey Bowl today and I had to go, sh- yeah, Turkey Bowl, woo! Which Steve, you missed it. Steve has played every Turkey Bowl with us up until this point right here. Can you move this row over? Cause it's driving me crazy. Like, I, I think we forgot to move it this morning. Yeah. There it is. That, way better. Yeah, that looks good right there. Perfect. So we had turkey ball, and then I went and took a shower, and my hair is long and needs a haircut, and I look like a... What do I look like, babe? I look silly when my hair's up. So I put a hat on, and I, I anticipated speaking in a hat, and they say that the parent is the most influential person in your life, which for the, for the most part for me, that's not true anymore because I'll be 31 next week. Uh, however, I can't stand here and speak with a hat on because if my dad found out, like he would form tackle me and just beat me to the ground. Not really. He's never beat me before. Well, in, you know, yeah, yet. So when we wrestle, he actually does beat me still and he's in his fifties. Well, I don't know what the deal is. Like, why can you never beat your dad? He's out of shape. I mean, he doesn't work out, doesn't run, you know, and I spend a lot of time in the gym, yet my dad can still whoop me, which it just, whatever. Mark, that has nothing to do with tonight. I'm just, rambling for rambling sake. That's why my hair looks like it does. That's why I have a mic on, because my mom and my dad. Thank you. So, Mark chapter 2, which again has nothing to do with this. Mark chapter 2, as we've walked through the book of Mark, uh, Mark writes a gospel, and he writes to defend, he's writing more than likely to the Romans, uh, or, or at least to the city of Rome, to uh, Gentiles who for the most part, or for the most part Gentiles, who would respond to this message of somebody being crucified. Again, we've talked before over and over again and stated when a Roman person, a Roman citizen, hears about a man who's crucified, it's an automatic connection with a criminal. Why? Because that's how they killed criminals. That was execution back then. And so it doesn't make sense. Why would this be somebody who's divine? Why would it be God? Why would it be somebody who God is now working through to save mankind if he's a criminal? And so Mark is writing to defend the divinity of Jesus and, and who he is which helps to explain what's going on, what God is doing, which leads them to the crucifixion again, making an argument for who Jesus is. And as we've walked through, we've just seen quick storylines of how God is working, how Jesus is working, how he's revealing who he is at this point, which brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And so here you have Jesus just before Uh, He had healed a man with leprosy. He'd healed many people. He'd cast out a demon. There were multiple healings going on, and people were watching. The last one that we talked about last week, he heals a man who has leprosy and tells the man, go and and go through the uh, ceremonial cleansing. Go see a priest. Make sure he deems you clean so you can enter back into the normal, everyday practices of a Jewish man in worship. And instead of doing that, he runs out and shares with the whole community what Jesus had done. And people are swarming to Jesus to where it drives him out of the town because he can't be there anymore because so many people are coming. And so he's out in a deserted place for a few days. And then he comes back into the city. It says the people heard that he had come home. That statement right there, he had come home. Where's Jesus from? 
from? Is he from Capernaum? No, he's from Nazareth. And so this is one of those where the translator took liberty to write home rather than house. It can just clearly be translated very simply. He came in and it was heard that he was in a house. I would argue that it should be translated he was in a house because when you say home, what does it do? It, It presents confusion. We're all confused now. Is this Jesus' home as opposed to, no, it's not. He's in Compertian. He's doing ministry, and he is just in a house. Again, you're at the, there are some cases when you're working with Scripture, you're at the liberty of that, the person who's translating. And so that would be the, the case if we uh, are, are talking about First uh, John. There's a passage there that I always go back to that says, if you claim to know Jesus, you're obligated to walk around as he did. Well, that's you guys are now at the liberty of my translation because that word can be translated, you ought to, or it can be translated, you should, it can be translated, you're obligated, or it can be translated, you're indebted to the point of where you sin. So there's a wide range where you're just at the mercy of the person translating. You guys with me? So it can present confusion. So here we'll say simply, no, this isn't Jesus' home, but rather it has been heard that he is in a house. He is now back. In verse 2, it says, So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So they hear that Jesus is now back in Capernaum. He is in the house, and they have cram-packed the place. Now, this isn't your standard, like, four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, two-car garage, and maybe the third that you threw in there on the side if you had the money to put your boat, right? That's not what we're dealing with, more than likely. There are are a few cases where we see New Testament-wise, you're packing multiple people in a home. If we go back and we look at Acts 1, when Jesus has told the disciples, hey, go into Jerusalem, wait, Uh, the promised one is going to come. This is Marty who's painting. He's doing a great job. We like to do painting sometimes in our services to just give us a more, I don't know what it is. It's cool, though. He does a good job. It brings a new aspect of worship into the simplicity of our worship service. So there's your strange. Thank you. appreciate that. Thanks for being here tonight. Anyway, so thank you, Marty, for being here. I love it when Marty paints. He does a great job. Regardless, so here you have multiple people. There are cases where there are multiple people packed into a house. You have those who are waiting. As Jesus has left, they're waiting for what God is going to do next. They're waiting. They're fasting. They're praying. There are roughly 120 people in an upper room. These homes can be very large. And so it's not like they cram-packed, you know, 25, 30 people in this thing. They have hundreds of people, more than likely, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm saying more than likely because of those cases, you've got hundreds of people who are packed in to the point where you can't get to the door. There are people outside the door, around, and you cannot get in to hear, to see Jesus because it is so packed. And it says, he's in this house, they've crammed packed to the point where you can't get to the door, and he preached the word to them. This was standard practice for Jesus. He enters the town. What does he do? He heals people and he speaks to them. He gives them the word. This is what God is doing now with man. That's his whole mission. It says he preaches the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And so you've got Jesus in a house, grandpa, you can't get to the door. And there are four men. It says there's a a paralytic, literally a paralytic uh, that is picked up. Or taken up by four. You have a man who's paralyzed, obviously paralytic. He's on a mat, and they can't get to Jesus. They've picked him up, and they're trying to get to Jesus. Now, you have four guys. Are these friends, family? We don't know. But there are guys who hear about Jesus, who's come back into Capernaum. There are tons of people there, and they say, okay, here's a man who is paralyzed. Let's pick him up, and let's take him to Jesus. Why? Because we've heard the rumors. We've We may have seen people, but we've heard about what Jesus can do, and we're trying to get this man now to Jesus. So they've taken this man up on a mat by four people, and then it says in verse 4, since they could not get to him 
or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat, um, the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. So four men come to Jesus, crowd surrounding, we cannot get in, and so what do, what do we do? It says they went on the roof and they removed it. Literally, they take the man, they go on the roof, and they remove the roof where Jesus was. And it says, after digging out, they were lowering the man down on the mat or the stretcher, whatever it is he's laying on, down to Jesus. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So here's Jesus, he's teaching, he's being swarmed by mobs of people. And again, they bring to him someone who is paralyzed, who is broken, who is sick, who is in need of healing, and they can't get to him. And so much like four college guys would do, let's get a plan. Hey, let's get on the roof, let's take it off, and let's dump him in there. This is a great plan. And so they climb on the roof carrying the man, and they remove the roof where Jesus was, and lowering him down, it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the man, Son, your sins are being let go. It's actually the same term. If we go back and we look uh, in, in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus calls the disciples who are in the boats, when he calls James, John, uh, Andrew, and Peter, and says, come and follow me, when it says that they let go of their nets, same term used here. Which can go back and, and, and heighten and strengthen that point we were making when these four men are called by Jesus. They immediately respond by letting go. In the same concept that Jesus looks at this man, seeing the faith of his four friends, says, your sins are being let go. It, I mean, it just it heightens the level of what was being said, or what was being done by the disciples in response to Jesus. And then two, you've got a man who there are four people who now care enough to pick him up, to take him to Jesus, to fight the crowd, to go on the roof, to remove the roof and drop Jesus down. Not Jesus down. Jesus is already there. Drop the paralyzed man down. Who's being dropped? I don't remember. Look at the word. And so they drop the man down, and Jesus sees him and says, Son, your sins are being let go. Verse 6, Now some teachers or scribes of the law were sitting and thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so you've got scribes who are sitting, they're listening to Jesus. They're not positive. They're not, they're not happy about Jesus, at least on the onset. And it says that Jesus perceiving that they're thinking in their minds, they hear him say, your sins are now forgiven, or your sins are being let go. They're being released. And they're thinking, you are a heretic. You are ungodly, you are unclean, because only God can do that. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, we'll stop there. Again, the, Mark's whole point, yes, is to present the gospel, the story of Jesus on how you find redemption, but he's making an argument for who Jesus is, for the divinity of Jesus. Jesus knows what those in the crowd are thinking. He's aware of. Why? Because he's God. Most of us are not able to do that. There may be one or two people that you can look at and, and think, I know what you're thinking because you're either my kid or you're my spouse. And I have enough experience with you. Other than that, most of us are pretty limited on being able to do that. But Jesus has the awareness, because he's divine, because he's God, he knows exactly what they're thinking. And before they think, before they, or before they speak, before they respond, before they do anything other than think, 
he responds to them immediately and says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your, uh, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? So Jesus ex- showing, expressing who he is and his divinity. I know what you're thinking, and now I'm going to address it. Is it harder to say, your sins are being let go, or is it more difficult to say, get up and walk to somebody who's paralyzed? It depends on how you look at the question. If you're looking at, hey, let's prove it now, and you say, hey, Andrew, your sins are being forgiven. Can we prove that to each other? Not really, other than theological arguments. But if you've got a paralyzed man and you say, get up, pick up your bed, and walk out of here, that's the more difficult one to prove. Why? Because that doesn't work. So Jesus posed the question, which one is more difficult? Verse 10. But that you may, uh, that, but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this, or never have we seen this take place. So Jesus poses the question, which is more difficult? Let me show you that I have authority, that you might know who I am. So get up, take your mat, and walk out of here. We often see the scribes in the New Testament, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all those who are religious authorities, for the most part, we see in a negative light in the New Testament. Why? Because they're opposing to Jesus. They're arrogant. Most of them are power hungry. Most of them are upset because of what Jesus is doing. They don't completely understand. They're offended. They're threatened by Jesus. There are multiple things that are going on, and we typically do not see them in a positive light. However, Jesus here, even though he's being opposed by, he knows just in their mere thoughts that they are being in opposition to Jesus and addresses the issue at the same time. In his statement to them, he says, so that you might know the gospel. Jesus goes ahead and reaches out to those who hate him. In a minute, he's going to talk about reaching out to those who are broken. It's very interesting that Jesus is willing to and makes an effort to consistently reach out and show the truth to those who hate him, to those who oppose him, to those who eventually have him arrested and killed. He's still reaching out and saying, I'm going to do this so that you might see this and so that you might know this, so that you might find redemption because I love you because I'm God. Which is a great point for us to remember as we go out in our call to love God, to love people. Is our call that we're obligated to walk around as Jesus did. We have to show love and truth to those who hate us. To those who oppose us. Our response has to be as followers of Jesus. The same as Jesus is. I'm going to show you what it is that's true. Obviously we're not God so we can't heal people. But at the same time our response is we're going to show you the truth and we're going to love you regardless of your actions toward us. So Jesus addresses them, and then he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Verse 12, he got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. Again, Mark defending the divinity of Jesus. Not only does he tell a man, hey, your sins are forgiven. Not only does he 
perceive and understand and know what these men are thinking. The teachers of the law are thinking in the crowd as they see and they hear this. And then he addresses, not only does he do those two things, but then he goes as far to a man is on the floor in a mat who's been lowered through a hole in the, in the roof and says, get up, take your mat, and walk out of here. Now, I don't know how the man was able to walk out because they weren't able to bring him in because of the whole crowd. I don't know if they spread out and they squished people. I'm not sure. You've got a large crowd who then has to make a way for this man to be able to walk out of here. But he walks out in full view of them all. And it amazes everyone to the point where if we went back and we were talking about different terms for amazement and those that carried a concept of fear with that, that's another one of these terms. It's not the same as when he cast out the demon and you've got a very intense situation going on. But at the same time, this amazement carries a concept of fear of we almost don't understand what's happening. But at the same time, it's one of those, the full concept of the story, it's, it's that just happened. If you ever saw Ricky Bobby that just happened. It says he gets up, he walks out, everyone is amazed, and they praise God and say, we have never seen this before. Again, defending the divinity of Jesus. He is God. He's able to perceive what man thinks. He's able to forgive sins. He's able to heal those who cannot walk. And in verse 13, as we move through this storyline, we're covering two chunks tonight so that we can move through Mark at a more rapid pace. Verse 13, it says, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. So Jesus is in Capernaum. He's teaching. He's surrounded. He heals people. He brings the message. And then we move to the next storyline. Once again, Jesus is outside the town now. He's by a lake, or he's outside by a lake, not outside the town. Excuse me. He's out by a lake, which often he's doing, at least on the onset of the ministry, as he's teaching. And a large crowd comes to him once again. This is the standard practice. Jesus shows up. People show up. It's very simple. They show up, he's teaching them. Verse 14, as he began to walk along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says to him, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. So Jesus is now teaching, crowd is surrounding, he's walking by the lake, and then he walks up to the tax collector booth. He looks and he sees Levi, this is the same account that you see in Matthew, but he's called Matthew in, in, in that book. Um, and Jesus says to him and commands him, follow me. The same thing that happened, you've got four men who are fishing in a boat, they're working with their dads, they're running their businesses. Jesus walks up by the side of the lake and he says, what? Follow me. Immediately, they let go of their nets, they get out of the boat and they begin to follow Jesus. Jesus is teaching, he's by lake, he walks up to a booth where a man is working. This is it's very interesting because the, the three accounts we've seen of Jesus call people, it's very similar. They're by a lake, they're working, Jesus shows up, let's go, they get up, they leave. They've left job, they've left home, they've left all these things. But this time, it's not a fisherman. Being a, being a middle-class fisherman owning a business with multiple boats and people who work for you, the family business, that's not a bad gig. People respect that. He's a hard-working man. He's a fit- we respect fishermen. If you're a professional fisherman in America, that's a great job. Maybe you just got a fishing team. I wish I was still there. That'd be fantastic. That's a respectable job. You're working hard. You're take, taking care of your family. Fantastic. Tax collector? You are stealing from us. I just broke this. Okay, I'm good. I'm better. And so he walks up, and rather than approaching someone, even though these guys aren't well-educated, and we see that uh, later in Scripture, not well-educated, and not the ones that you would select to educationally follow in this rabbi-disciple concept and teacher and pupil, but at the same time, they're fairly respectable men. 
but now he's approached somebody who is unclean, hands off. You have a term all for yourself, and it's called a tax collector because you are a traitor and you steal from us. Most of you have heard before a tax collector works very simple. They worked for the, the government of uh, the Roman government. They collected what they were supposed to for Rome, and then anything they wanted to make on top of that, they were able to go ahead and charge it as well, and they kept it for themselves. That was allowed. And so that's how they made their money. So you have a traitor. Jesus approaches this man and says, follow me. He says he gets up and he follows Jesus. In verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Now, this is where it gets really sporty. Not only does Jesus have the audacity to walk up to a man who's a traitor, who's unclean, who steals from his own people for his gain. Not only does Jesus walk up and talk with him, have a conversation and say, hey, I'm inviting you to come follow me. But then he goes to the man's house and he sits down and he begins to eat with him. Which, I mean, this is a major no-no. You enter the house of someone who's unclean and then you sit down at their table of someone who's unclean. You begin to eat with their utensils, their bowls, their spoons, their forks, their cups. You use those things to put stuff in your body, you are now becoming unclean and you are practicing things in an unclean way. You are being ungodly, unholy, unclean. You are wrong. Welcome to heresy once again. And not only is he eating with the tax collectors, but there are sinners who are coming and eating with him as well. It says, eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then you have those who are well-educated, who are teachers of the law, who are well-respected in the community. You come for them for spiritual advice, direction, for mentoring, for what is true. How do we respond to God? These are the people you come to. They have been brought up for this purpose. And they look at Jesus and they talk to his disciples and say, Are you kidding me? Why is he eating with them? He should be eating with us. Jesus is now highly, not, not only is he unclean, he's practicing something that he's not supposed to be doing. He's now offending those who are in power. Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Again, we get back into this concept as we walk through Mark, this idea of following Jesus. What is that supposed to look like? Jesus calls four men by a boat. He walks up and says, come follow me. They let go of their nets. They get out and they begin to follow Jesus. And they watch what Jesus does. And then they respond and do what Jesus did. Jesus walks up to a tax collector booth and he says, follow me. man gets up, he follows him, and he goes into his house. And he sits down and he eats with him and he eats with his friends and he eats with all those who are sinners that will come to Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus addresses those who are empowered, those who are well-educated, those who are supposed to know this is how we know and respond and worship God who say you're wrong, you're unclean, and you're offensive. And Jesus responds with, I didn't come to heal and to save those who were well and those who were not broken. 
He says, I came to save those who were lost. I came to heal those who were sick. I'm sitting with these people because they're broken. The first priority of following Jesus is not to find ourselves being right about everything. It's not to find ourselves being that the people who bring about morality within our society so that everybody acts right. If we were able to walk into Flowerman High School and convince every male in that school that they should not be sexually active until they were married, our American Christian culture would say, praise God, we've done it. Yes, success. And what did we do? We walked in and we were able to convince 500, 600 plus male students between the ages of 15 and 18 not to have sex. Fantastic. What do we get at the end of the day? 600 plus guys who will eventually die and spend eternity where? Separated from God. Why? Because we're worried about the moral character. Is that important? Absolutely. Is that our first response to people? No. Our first response to people is that the same as Jesus. He walks in, he sits down, and he eats with them. In spite of everyone else. Jesus loves the people who are sick, the people who are broken. A relationship with Jesus and knowing Him and understanding what God's done and finding forgiveness, finding correction, that then leads to, I'm changing the way I live, I'm changing the way I act, I'm changing the way I treat people, I'm changing the things that I do, the things that I desire to then be after God. And that's when those things change. And we see moral character come around. And we see those desires. But our first purpose as followers of Jesus, as Christians in 21st century American culture, is not to make America moral again. Our purpose is to love them and to share Jesus with them in hopes that they might see what is true about the fact that broken they they need Jesus, which then could bring about moral redemption in our society. But that's not the point. We are, I would argue, we're failing at a large portion at reaching out and loving people who are unlovable at this point. Just individually, on a daily basis. If we could sit down and say, the last seven days, who did I encounter, who did I reach out to that I legitimately show the love of Jesus to, who was broken? Could we name seven? I don't know. Can I? No. I give you three. And Jesus does it on a daily basis. That's that's what he's doing. And a major part of the story that we are studying is the call to follow Jesus. Not only is it defending the divinity of Jesus, but it is also giving us what is our response. Get out of the boat, walk behind Jesus. Walk into the tax collector's home, sit down and have a meal. That obviously looks different here. But what can that look like for you? 
I don't think it's a surprise that both Matthew, if you go um, to chapter 9 and look at the call of Matthew, just before that you have a man who is brought in by four people who's laid down on a mat and is healed by Jesus, and the same conversation happens. It doesn't talk about the roof and the crowd and the removing of the roof and all those great things. But it's, it's very interesting. Both of these guys who are sharing this gospel story do it so in the same way. The first thing they address just in the storyline or, or before uh, you get to the issue with the tax collectors, the sinners, and who he's eating with, Jesus is there healing someone who's physically broken. They come to Jesus, they come to God with flesh on and say, hey, we've got a man who's broken and we know that you can heal him. And simply by seeing the, fa- the faith of four men who bring in somebody who's broken, Jesus responds and says, your sins are being forgiven, get up and walk. Jesus came to heal and to fix those who could not walk. And he did that. And I think it's no surprise that you have that story, and then right after that, both Matthew and Mark write this story about Jesus approaching somebody who is sitting at a tax collector's booth, who is a traitor, who steals from people, and Jesus says, I came to heal you because you're broken. We have to reach out to those who are broken. Those who are physically broken, that is one. The response of four men, they hear about Jesus. How can we help this guy? Pick him up. Take him to Jesus. Who have you picked up lately? That was very practical. Have you supported a kid who's hungry? We've got 437 kids from Operation Impact that we're supporting to be able to feed, and we're after a 1,000 right now. If you don't know, our church runs, I think, like 1,500 people. That's one kid a person, plus 500 and something. Why aren't we picking them up? Where's our faith at? You have four men who have the faith that I'm going to pick him up and I'm going to drop him in a hole. I'm going to tear this roof off if I have to. To get him to Jesus. And we sit as a community and go, we got 437, we're moving. I would like to think that we are the type of men, the type of women who look at it and go, if I have to tear the roof off, I'm tearing the roof off because I'm getting him in there. We're not. Why? Once you start dealing with money, I know that you, that you sit down and you look and you go, okay, what are my finances doing? What am I preparing for? How am I paying for my house, the cars, what I'm getting ready for for kids that are going to college who, or who will go to college or, you know, I'm getting ready to get married. Whatever it is, money's a tight issue for us. Jesus sees the faith of four men and says, your sins are let go. Get up and walk. Guess who got to participate in that? Four men who picked up a mat and said, we're not stopping. Once you get to my, this, the money thing is, is easy for me when we're talking about people who don't have food, who don't have those things, and we can go, where's my faith at? What am I doing to pick somebody up? We have to do that. And so then it goes on, and the next story is that Jesus sits down and loves 
those who are evidently broken, not physically, but evidently broken in the way they live, the way they treat people, the way they think, the, the things they want, they are messed up. Are we taking the time to love those people? Are we taking the time to pick them up and take them to Jesus? Not all of them are going to respond, but are we taking the time to do that regardless of what other people say? If you're not doing something that's not offensive to somebody, you're probably not doing much. And I don't mean you to go out and say, okay, how am I going to tick somebody off today? That's not what I'm getting at. I'd do that. But real, I mean, legitimately, what am I doing? If, if Jesus were here today, most of us would probably be offended. Why don't you come to my house, bro? And do a quiet time every night. I have made it to Sunday's morning church. You could, you've seen me, Jesus. You saw me there. I've been there the last 16 years of my life with my Bible. Huh? Where you at? We're having brisket. We have a nice home, wood floors, new shutters, spin vacuum. The maid comes three days a week. I don't have a maid. I do have shutters, I do have wood floors. Why didn't you come to my house? Because you didn't pick anybody up. You didn't tear up a roof. You did not put yourself in a position where you had to trust Jesus to provide for you so that you could make an impact for somebody who was broken. What are we doing every day for those who are broken, for those who cannot physically walk, for those who physically cannot eat? What are we doing for those we look at and go, hands off, do we love those people? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for another chance to come to study your word. Um, we pray for opportunities, God, to share you with people. Pray for... Uh, our neighbors who live around us who don't know you, we pray that you will give us opportunities. I pray that you'll give me opportunities, uh, more opportunities to build relationships with, to love people, to be involved, uh, in our communities, God, so that you could be, uh, made known, so that you might be known to those who need you, God. Pray that you will give us faith, uh, that you'll give us encouragement, that you'll give us strength to do things for you rather than ourselves, God. We just thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. We praise, we worship you for all that you are. God, again, thank you for another chance to come together to worship, to study. Uh, just thank you for your love and forgiveness. Your question we pray, amen.